Good morning, church. So we're in the midst of celebrating Advent. We're celebrating a time of anticipation. I think you already kind of heard that. And, and each week, we celebrate a different virtue that God brings to us through Jesus and, and, and has brought to us through his coming and through the Holy Spirit, but also that we are looking for, that we're looking forward to, that we're anticipating more of in our lives. It's interesting, and, and this is the thing I want to kind of keep in front of us, is that why we're doing this whole Advent thing anyway is because we're not just looking backward. We're not just looking thousands of years ago to what God has done in bringing his son. We're taking that time backward and bringing it into the now. We need Christ coming as much as we did back then. We need it now. And actually, it helps us to look forward because we're actually looking forward to a time of his coming. We're anticipating when he is going to come and finish everything that he finished, if that makes sense. He finished it on the cross, but he's coming again to finish it completely. And we're looking forward, and that that should change how we live. And I think that loss of anticipation damages us more as disciples than anything else because we think, wow, it's, you know, the coming of Jesus is just really, really far off and it's just way out there somewhere and I can just kind of keep living my life however I want to. I can stay in the patterns of behavior that I have been. I can keep making things that aren't God a priority and that's totally okay because his coming is so far off. And what Advent is designed to do is it's designed to bring it back into the now for us. No, no, it's not that far off. It'll come in your lifetime. And I was, I was telling our class this morning, like I, I could pretty much put money on it that it's going to come in your lifetime because either he's going to come or your life is going to end and you are going to be with him. Either way. So let's give it what? You know, for most of us, within 100 years, we'll be good, right? Okay? Does that shorten the timeline for you at all? I hope it does. And that's why we're talking about what we're talking about. That's why we're spending this time in the Word trying to foster this anticipation to make it real for you again because we do ourselves a disservice when the idea of Jesus coming is something far away and out of sight. He is coming soon. Are we preparing the way for His coming? And are we living out of the virtues that he's given us? Last week we talked about hope. And we talked about this idea of, of both needing to, to embrace the hope that God has given, but also needing to be beacons of that hope to the world around us. And today we're going to emphasize the virtue of peace. And let's just be honest. Like, like peace is one of those quiet, strong qualities that I have always longed for and many times found in short supply. You walk into my house at any given moment, there is not a lot of what you would consider to be peace going on at that point in time. As many of you who have gone over to my house have, have, have found out. Celebration, yes. Joy, yes. Peace, not necessarily. I'm a night person. And it's, and it's usually in those long stretches of the dark, especially now late into the fall and winter season when our house is all asleep. 
when the day is done, I would say that the peace of God finds me or that I find it. And, and, and we need those times of cessation, don't get me wrong, where, where we stop, we quiet ourselves, we quiet our world, and we seek the stillness and the nearness of God. Sabbath is a thing that is commanded in the life of the disciple. It's not just a good idea. It's vital. You die without it. Your soul shrivels up. We may be freed from the regulation of observing it in the Levitical law, but the need to be still and know that I am God is probably the most needed Christian practice in all of Christmas. To quote Amy Grant, we need this Christmas most a silent night, a holy night, to hear the voice of God through the chaos and the noise, a midnight clear, a little peace right here to end our crazy days with a silent night. And yet, as important as Sabbath rest is, and as much as we need a renewal of it in our frankly idolatrous busyness during the holiday season, we do ourselves a disservice when we only associate the peace of God with rest or silence or cessation. See, the peace of God is wider than this, I believe. It has to be wider than this. It can't just be the snagging of escape for small moments of quiet. When I look in scripture, I see a word that we know as shalom. And we translate that as peace. But it describes more than a sense of just entering into the quietness or the rest of God. It's a sense of grounding in God's reality. It's of being found whole and found complete in that reality. And this is a good definition, and I think it's one that we need to embrace more when we think of peace because an honest look at the life of a follower of God is this. There are a few instances of detached tranquility that we would associate with inward peace. There are few instances of a lack of struggle or a lack of conflict there are very, very few instances where, as we, read, as we read this morning in Isaiah, where the lion lies down with the lamb and the kid can play with snakes and nothing bad happens. What we see, moreover, the peace of Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Jesus himself, Peter, Paul, countless others that come after, is a peace that exists in turmoil. It's a peace in motion rather than a peace in stillness. And this should be good news for us instead of bad news. The shalom of God is not dependent on your current circumstances in order to function. You don't need to get all your stuff together and be able to find that quiet space in order to experience the shalom of God. The shalom of God desires to meet you where you are at. He desires to invade you with his completeness and his wholeness even when everything around you looks like it is very lacking in those qualities or lacking in the stillness or lacking in the silence. He desires to come and quiet you with his love. He desires to come and be near to you. It's been the whole trajectory of Scripture is God drawing nearer and nearer to us. Will we let him? 
That's the question. And that's the question that we have to ask about peace. See, the, the thing we also need to realize is this consistent availability of God's peace is also beyond our ability to fabricate. I cannot create it internally in my life. I cannot create it in my personal spheres of influence. I cannot make my family be peaceful in the way that I want it to. In fact, the more that I try to do it, the more I become the grumpy dad that nobody wants to be around. Okay? I'm still trying to figure that part out. But I at least got that part. And I am not able to fabricate peace in my communal or national or global stage. I cannot do that. It is beyond our ability to do as humans. It is Yahweh alone who brings his shalom through his son, who carries the title Prince of Peace. And our calling as disciples is to anticipate that, to look for where his shalom is in our lives and to adjust our lives to embrace it. Whatever the circumstances around us look like. And Matthew is going to remind us of this fact as, as we're looking at the family tree of Jesus by highlighting Rahab of Jericho. He's reminding us that the family tree of Jesus is grown out of times of turmoil as well as times of prosperity. Even in the violence of revolution and conquest and overturning and this feeling of powerlessness and this feeling of out of control, Yahweh has prepared a surprising way of peace for her and for us. Rahab's story is one of the richest and probably most intricately woven in the entire book of Joshua. Spans more chapters than any character besides Joshua himself. And it uses so many different things. It uses irony and suspense and sexual innuendo and a host of other tools to create an irresistible story that's intended to evoke a lot of surprise out of us if we're willing to read it. I mean, think about this. How is it that this book of Joshua that is so keen on emphasizing uncompromising devotion to Yahweh and his holiness has its first major story take place in the house of a prostitute? Have you ever wondered about that? Just think about that for a second. Unless something more is going on than what we realize. Rahab herself is actually depicted in a way that sets us up for a certain expectation. Her name is a play on words. In Hebrew, it means a broad or an open place. It's kind of an old soldier's joke. Okay? Girl's name literally means open for business. Now, what does that do? It sets us up to expect that we're going to get just what we see. Another godless Canaanite, a two-dimensional person who is marginalized and is a woman and is basically just defined by her immoral and banal occupation. That's what you are set up to believe at the beginning. And then all of that gets erased. Because the whole point is, is that Rahab isn't just another broad. That's like, that is really the whole point of the language there, is to set you up and then knock you down and say, wait a minute. What you see is not what you get here. 
She is actually the savviest character in the entire story. She is the one with the wisdom to see what God is up to and act accordingly. Even Joshua, earlier in the story, doesn't know what God's up to. He's like, we've got this really big fortified city, and I just don't know what's going on. And he meets the, you know, he meets the, the commander of the armies of the Lord, the angel out in the wilderness, and is like, so, I, I mean, really, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? The angel's like, why would you even ask that question? I'm not for you, and I'm not for your adversaries. I'm the commander of Yahweh's armies, and I operate on a completely different level than you imagine. And Joshua himself doesn't get it, but Rahab already gets it. She already sees what's going on. How is it that somebody that's so inside doesn't get what's going on and is in such turmoil and actually is doing things that got Moses in trouble and got the people of Israel in trouble, sending spies out ahead rather than moving forward in faithfulness, but Rahab already knows what the outcome's going to be. It looks like she's in a disguise of powerlessness, but she actually commands the most powerful decisions in the entire story. And she's also a very, very surprising seeker of God's shalom. She makes professions and she makes decisions that we only expect a mature insider of Israel to make. But where Joshua is fearful and the spies are afraid for their lives, she moves with purpose. It's a very, very interesting thing. It's important to note that Rahab's story is all placed against a very, very volatile backdrop, if you think about it. The armies of Israel are drawing closer and closer and closer to the fortifications of Jericho. And this is not a coordinated legion of well-trained soldiers. I mean, think about it. Who is Israel right now? They're just a ragtag band of former slaves and desert nomads, and they are being propelled to victory again and again by inexplicable circumstances. The only thing you can attribute it to is divine intervention. And that is scary. It is striking fear into the hearts of the Canaanite towns after the annihilation of these two really great Amorite armies of these two kings, Og and Sihon. And now they're crouched on the edge of the Jordan. They're getting ready to crash the gates of Jericho, gates that have never been broken inward, walls that have never failed to repel invaders. Irresistible force meets immovable object. there will be a showdown. Okay? And on, like, cataclysmic violence is coming. You just know it. Like, the story's moving that direction, right? Two will enter, one will leave. That's the way this works. And sitting on the face of that wall, at the climax point of all that chaos, is Rahab's house, her home her family, her existence. If there is a less peaceful place in Scripture, I do not know of it. I can't ignore the fact that she's got to make incredible life or death decisions under extreme duress. Okay? But at the same time, I'd be foolish to believe that she's just an opportunistic convert, somebody who switches sides to save her own skin. 
There's too, there's too much wisdom there. There's too much realization of what's happening there. Scripture never portrays her in that light. Rahab is one to whom the vision of God has been given, and she responds as one who is faithfully seeking the deliverance of God into peace. Now, of course, Rahab could have been an opportunist if she chose to ignore or disqualify the, the deliverance that God was offering. The spies from Israel, they place themselves in a vulnerable position in Rahab's care, and as the king of Jericho knocks on her door, the power is hers to seemingly diffuse the situation. She could turn the spies over. She could receive a reward, an unimaginable reward. Okay, She wouldn't have to practice her profession anymore. Think about this. This is her golden ticket. She turns over these spies. Kings all the time are like, ask anything you want up to half the kingdom. They seem to say that all the time. I don't know why they keep doing that, but they keep doing that, okay? She could have done that. She could have said, here's my ticket. I will take my peace into my own hands. I will take my deliverance into my own hands. And she's holding all the cards. She knows what's going on. She knows where these guys are, and she knows who's standing at her door. And she does the unthinkable. She has the vision to step outside of her circumstances and see what God is up to and makes risky decisions, Puts her, actually brings herself into a state of less peace and less security because what's going to happen if she says, oh, no, 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 they came to me, again, double entendre, okay, and then they went about their business, and if you hurry, you could catch him. And what happens if he leaves two guys to search the place? What happens if he doesn't buy it? I mean, like, there's, there's a terrible amount of risk here that she voluntarily enters into when she could take the easy way out because she has a greater vision for what's going on. She voluntarily gives up control. And then she does it again. Because after the king leaves and goes off on the wild goose chase, she comes up to the spies and she could say, I just saved your skin. You owe me big time. She's holding all the cards again. And what does she do? She voluntarily gives up control a second time. And instead of demanding, she begs to be delivered through the calamity of battle into the house of Israel and their unmatched God. Like, oh man. I'm like, I'm like, you're a terrible poker player. Like, what are you doing? But see, in God in God's world, she's making all the right moves. It's such a strange request unless we realize that it holds a universal truth. We are rarely given truly viable options to escape the calamity of life. We may think we can do it, but we don't have that. Rarely, rarely does God give you the opportunity to escape the circumstances. Deliverance rarely comes from Look in the word of God or, or just look around you. Deliverance doesn't come from your circumstances. Deliverance comes through. 
True deliverance to peace happens from God shepherding us through the chaos, not outside of it. And so Rahab chooses to surrender to the deliverance of God. The oath she makes the spies swear twice before they escape the city out of her window is not that they will spare her, but that Yahweh himself will deliver the household. Who's she actually placing her trust in? Not these two guys. Swear in the name of your God (laughs) that he will deliver us. And it's uncanny how much Rahab's experience mirrors the Exodus story of the Israelites themselves in Egypt. Have you noticed this? The fall of Jericho takes place at the same time as Passover, the remembrance feast of God's deliverance. They cross the Jordan, they celebrate Passover, Passover happens for Rahab. Like Israel, she marks her house in scarlet to set herself apart for deliverance. Cord from the window, blood on the door frames. Same thing. Like Israel, her, her family must stay within the sacred place of the door frames while the fury of God crashes in all around them. Like Israel, she and her family must be ready to flee at a moment's notice through the destruction, through the Red Sea, walking through on dry ground with the, Israel, with the Egyptian army behind you, just moving forward and just praying every step of the way that they're not going to overtake you while the sea is surrounding you. Except now it's a sea of two armies crashing in all over the place and they're sitting in their house on the wall as the entire wall crashes down. And yet miraculously, just like there's this little safe space in the middle of the sea, there's a little safe space in the middle of the sea. Like Israel, her family is ushered out into the wilderness for a time outside the camp before they're brought into their inheritance of the land to be counted with the rest of Israel. And all of this has got an overt message attached to it that I I don't think we can ignore. There is indeed a place in Abraham's promise for everyone to find peace, to find shalom, for all people to be blessed and not only counted as righteous but counted as children of God. Thousands of years before Cornelius, there was already a faithful Gentile who was counted as a full child of Israel, and her name is Rahab. Hmm. Now the thing is, the Messiah to come in Jesus, fulfilling You know, he opens the door wide. But here's the thing. He's only finishing what God was already doing at Jericho. He was faithfully delivering those who would call him Lord and seek his shalom in their lives. He's already been doing that. And he's still doing that. See, there's still a great difficult for difficult for me working with Rahab's story or even just working working with the book of Joshua at all, okay? Just that there's so much violence in her story. I mean, if you think about it, her decisions have a terrible cost. She has to choose not to warn the neighbors that she spent her entire life with about the coming onslaught. She and her family are the sole survivors of something we would categorize as utterly monstrous. And there's no way to get out of that one. 
okay? I'm sorry, if, if this were on CNN today, we would say this is unthinkable, okay? You think Aleppo is bad? Let's talk about Jericho. There's no way to nullify the tragedy. Did she feel survivor's guilt? Did the ghosts of those old friends come back on sleepless nights to haunt her? I don't know. I do know this. Deliverance is rarely a clean or simple process. And oftentimes it doesn't seem real peaceful in the way that we would want to categorize peace. If we have a flat definition of peace that's the absence of conflict, our peace will not hold up to the reality of life. We will start searching for a phantom that does not exist. Then again, I could humbly suggest that maybe our definitions of peace and violence need a lot of work, both of them. See, I think, I think for us, violence is a really broad brush of a word. We, we, any, any power exerted to harm falls under that definition. Rape, battlefield assault, anything, everything. Okay? Here's the interesting thing. Violence in the Hebrew consciousness takes on a slightly distinct form. It refers to any action that tears at the fabric of identity and society by defying God's sovereignty. Any, any action that moves outside the realm of where God is king is violent. It doesn't justify violence. It just places it in a context, you know, it just places it in the context of human arrogance or our imperious self-interest at the expense of others. The invasion of Jericho has theological implications. It does. I'm not explaining it away, but it is designed to establish a society of Torah where God is properly acknowledged as Lord, where humans will act justly toward one another, a place where that grounding, that completeness and fullness, that shalom can flourish. Now, it doesn't happen that way. But is that because of God or is that because, again, our human arrogance and our self-interest decide to take the stage? That's one of those big questions that we can wrestle with. But ultimately, it's one of those crooked paths, those crooked lines that ultimately traces a path to the Messiah. And as difficult as that is for us to reconcile, Matthew's gospel doesn't ignore it, and neither should we. In fact, this is one of the most critical but important truths of the gospel is that restoration doesn't happen without a winnowing, without a judgment. Jesus, I mean, Jesus never pulls punches about that one. He is the Prince of Peace, but boy, he talks a lot about that, about that dividing. That, that dividing, that separating between what is of the reign of God and what is not of the reign of God, and he doesn't really mince words about what's going to happen to the stuff that's not of the reign of God. Okay? And, and if we're trying... To mince words, if we're trying to explain that away or if we're trying to make that restoration and that coming and that making everything right distant, we're doing ourselves a disservice because we're not really looking at reality of God the way that the reality of God truly is. We're superimposing our own ideas of peace over God's shalom. 
See, because it's in that winnowing, it's in that dividing that we find the beginning of that peace, of that grounding, of that fullness and completeness. It's a supernatural peace that sometimes the divine wrecking ball is attached to. Because there's an unfailing promise there that what is built in the aftermath will be better, will be holier, will be more complete than anything that I could try to produce or protect with my imperfect hands. And there are walls that need to go down. Catastrophic as it is, in order for the city of God to be built in my life and built in this world? Am I willing to embrace a peace that can carry me through both of those things? We see John the Baptist speak pretty freely of a winnowing and a pruning that is necessary for the kingdom of God to grow. And for those who think to hold their salvation in their own hands, they need to humble themselves and they need to surrender to God's transformation. We see the descendant of Rahab and Salmon proclaim that the merciful will be blessed for they will be shown mercy and that those who seek to participate in bringing God's peace will be called the children of God. And then he turns around and says that this peace first has a sword in it that divides. That must separate a person from who they were in order to become the disciple and the child that they're intended to be. If you can't handle the division, you can't actually become the disciple and the child. You can't actually seek the peace. And we look at Rahab and we see all of those truths coming together in one story, one woman who is transformed from outsider to child, from harlot to righteous ancestor of the Messiah because of the pursuit of God's deliverance into peace. And so church, my question for you today is this, what are you willing to abandon for that deliverance? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to surrender in order to move in the path of peace? Real peace. That grounding, that completeness in God that defies your circumstances. We're called to be disciples moving through our own exodus. To be held throughout the unbridled power of God, stripping away our false gods and demolishing our faulty fortresses in order to establish his home and his kingdom in our hearts and in our community. If we're trying to hold on to our lives, the Messiah says we're going to lose it. But if like Rahab and like Jesus, we are willing to abandon ourselves to God in the anticipation of his peace, then we will truly find it. And so whether this Advent time is a silent or a rough one for you, I believe the call is still the same. Deliverance is coming through the chaos for you. Peace is on the horizon. And so prepare your heart for the way of the Lord today. Amen? Amen.